I have to go upstairs and record something again, so... Quiet. Quiet, and do not... Smash anything. And do not disturb. Do not disturb. Do not come into your room. Hi, you're listening to Pandemic, a new podcast from RTE News and Current Affairs on the COVID-19 crisis. I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, and most days of the week I'll be talking to RTE's correspondents, reporters and others to bring you news, updates and analysis you can trust. We can guarantee you a high quality of information. The sound quality, on the other hand, might vary somewhat sometimes, as correspondents and I will be recording this in many cases on mobile devices from home, so please do bear with us. It's Tuesday, March 31st. We have a bit of a packed episode today. I've been talking to RT's health correspondent, Fergal Bowers, about intensive care admissions and the north-south approach to a virus that respects no border. Also, our Europe editor Tony Connolly has been telling me about the tensions the pandemic is causing within the Eurozone. He's also been talking to Ilva Johansson, the EU Home Affairs Commissioner. But before we get to that, let's get a snapshot of the global picture from RT's foreign desk's Killian Sherlock. Hi Killian, how are you today? I'm all right, getting used to this work from home now yourself? Yeah, pretty much the same, all right. So the global picture, let's start with the overall figure in the world today. Yeah, so we're now seeing, and this is a major landmark, I suppose, is we're now seeing more than three quarters of a million confirmed cases of COVID-19. That's uh, more than 791,000 cases, actually, across 185 countries. It's important to say that this includes, you know, 163,000 people who are considered to be recovered. But unfortunately, Unfortunately, though, we've also seen a total of 38,466 deaths so far. These figures also, you know, might be underrepresented things, as many countries are only testing people who are hospitalised. So, Killian, let's look at Europe first. Spain and Italy have been the worst in Europe for in terms of fatalities. How are things there today? Yeah, so Italy and Spain continue to be the worst affected. Um, in Europe, we've had more than 420,000 confirmed cases, uh, but Spain and Italy are accounting for most of the continent's deaths. Spain, unfortunately, had its worst 24 hours. Uh, we had... 184, sorry, 849 new fatalities, bringing the total to just under 8,200. Italy has seen 11,500 deaths since it breached. Despite this, both countries seem confident that, you know, you know, bad couple of days, but they seem that the number of new transmissions is decreasing after high rates last week. And Belgium has had a bad day. Yeah, another unfortunate headline comes out of Belgium. There were 98 deaths in a 24-hour period. That's quite bad. But tragically, it also included a 12-year-old girl. Um, elsewhere in Europe, uh, France has reported 3,000 deaths and 44,500 cases. Outside of Europe then, Killian, in the Middle East, Iran, there are things happening there in terms of aid being supplied. Yeah, so Iran um, is one of the worst affected uh, countries in, in the world. It has had, it is said that a further 141 people have died, raising the official death toll to just under 3,000. In the last 24 hours, we've also seen 3,000 new cases. 
But there is some positive news. Um, Britain, France and Germany have sent a shipment of medical aid to Iran. It's uh, it's the first such kind of sanction bypassing deal since the US pulled out of the nuclear agreement in 2018. And what about the US itself? Uh, you mentioned them there. What's the picture like there at the moment? Yeah, so Johns Hopkins University, which you know many people might be familiar with their online map there, they're recording uh, that the US passed 3,000 deaths yesterday, which is from its more than 163,000 confirmed cases. And elsewhere, authorities in mainland China say 76,000 of their 81,500 cases have recovered with 3,300 deaths. Um, It has recorded just 48 new infections and sadly one death since Monday. Okay, finally for today then, Killian, the UK figures. There seems to be some differences between official sources as to the fatality rates from COVID-19 there. Yeah, so there have been reports today that the UK's government's figures could be significantly lower than the actual number of COVID-19 related deaths. That's because the Office for National Statistics has a different criteria for recording coronavirus deaths. It looks at death certificates where COVID-19 is listed as a suspected contributing factor to the death, whereas it appears the UK government's figures only look at deaths in hospitals of patients who have tested positive. It's an important distinction because it gives more of a sense at what could be happening in the community, like uh, care homes. Um, there's actually a 23% increase in the ONS figures for England and Wales when compared to the figures released by the government. I'm sure this will all become clearer in the next few days. In any case, uh, new figures out today show the official numbers for the UK that it has had its worst 24 hours so far. A total of 1,801 people have now died, including 367 more in England, 13 in Scotland, 7 in Wales and 6 in Northern Ireland. Okay, thanks Killian. No problem. Now, for a more detailed picture of what's happening in Ireland, I checked in this afternoon with Fergal Bowers, RTE's health correspondent. Hello. Hey. How's it oh, going? Hi, I can hear you now. How, how's it going? Yeah, Good. not too bad. Um, Fergal, so first of all, today, the intensive care units, we had admissions of, I think, 103 was the figure for today. Is that right? So the total number of COVID-19 cases admitted to intensive care units is currently 103. And we've also heard that intensive care units in Dublin are under a very significant pressure. And around 37% of these intensive care unit admissions are people aged 65 years or older. So that's important. However, that also means that around 63% are under 65 years too. So people should bear that in mind. And when you look at then overall hospitalizations, at the moment, the figure is about 645 So that'd be about 26% of cases. It's a substantial amount. Uh, And both hospitalizations and intensive care admissions, they're both rising. So they are the key figures really to watch um, in terms of trends, probably rather than the number of new confirmed cases, which are important, but they're more of a snapshot and not everything is being captured because of you know, well, well um, reported delays in testing and also that testing is really more focused now. It's not general, uh, general wide testing. And before we, we have a look at the testing, would, is there any indication that we're at, if we were to look at this in terms of the graphic of rising cases, are we in the foothills of the surge at this stage? Yeah, the foothills is probably a, a good um, term 
you know, we, we the issue in relation to where we are in terms of projections that you would have people will have heard from Professor Philip Nolan, who's done some of the you know statistical modeling and um, for the National Public Health Emergency Team. And, you know, he, he's been saying that uh, we're not on track for an unmitigated epidemic here. Um, and that before the restrictions were in place, we were seeing cases growing at about 33 percent a day. But in recent days, that figure has fallen to a growth in confirmed cases of about 15% a day. I mean, that is good news, but there's caveats around that because it's just too early, uh, he says, to make projections on what things uh, will look like in a few weeks, never mind a few months, because the assumptions you'd be basing it on will be way too broad. So we do need to see, he says, another seven to 10 days to see the effect of the most recent measures, the major measures that were announced last Friday, and to see if that's flattening the curve more and making it more of a manageable epidemic. We will have a surge. It's just the scale of the surge, if you can, if you can push it down and spread it out over a longer period of time. It'd be fair to say at this stage, though, that we'll never know what the true extent of the penetration of the virus is in society because we've stopped testing to establish that we're testing with an entirely other aim in mind. We are now we're doing we're up at around the last figures we're planning for about 5000 tests a day, which is a substantial number. I mean, and it's a it's a it's quite an achievement. Um, but before this, there were around 40,000 people waiting to have a test and they had to reapply to see whether they'd be eligible under the new structure. So new criteria. So that was complex. I think it caused quite a bit of confusion, understandably, for the public. And also, there's been delays in testing. I mean, I, I'm aware of a case of someone I know uh, who's been waiting 12 days for the results of a test. And I, I know from emails and communications I've got that other, many other people are waiting several days, some waiting over a week or more. So, I mean, that's a, that is a difficulty. And the HSC has acknowledged there are delays in testing. And it's down to a couple of things. It's down to there was a, has been a shortage of test kits but I believe that's being sorted and also a shortage of reagents. And these are these are used by laboratories uh, to do tests. And because of that, we saw the closure of Parky, Creve and Cork at the weekend uh, because of equipment shortages. Some of those are due to all come back online. So things should improve. But the HSE certainly last night wasn't able to quantify the delay periods for testing. We will get an update this evening, a weekly update on testing, actually, at the um evening briefing scheduled for around seven o'clock tonight now at the Department of Health on the number of tests done and also maybe on the scale of the backlog. And are we looking at about 5,000 tests per day at the moment? At the moment, but that being ramped up, uh, the HSE says over several weeks to 15,000 tests a day, which is a, a very substantial number requiring, uh, you know, a, a large amount of of manpower uh, to get the tests done and to get the results back to people. And of course, the advice for people is, you know, if you're waiting to be tested or if you're already tested and you're waiting for the result, act on the advice that you've already been given. So self-isolate and be taking the precautions, though you're waiting for the results and understandably maybe frustrated waiting for the results because you can't inform other people around you or elsewhere or your employer whether you're confirmed or not. And, 
you know, that's a difficulty for people. The whole island approach, Fergal, was one of the things that came into focus today. And Simon Coveney talking to his counterpart, the Northern Ireland Secretary, about how North-South cooperation could be improved. What do we know from that? Yes, well, there was a North-South teleconference today involving the Taunished and the Northern Ireland Secretary and the First Ministers and also including um, Minister for Health Simon Harris. There, I mean, there appear to be genuine efforts to try and have closer cooperation north-south, and there has been cooperation going on since this crisis uh, started. Now, of course, Northern Ireland takes its lead from the UK government, uh, who, you know, in the end would be footing the bill for COVID measures there. And there is a five-party power-sharing executive in Northern Ireland, and we have to recognise that. But, I, you know, while there has been good cooperation I, there were those points raised by the well-known public health expert, Dr. Gabriel Scali, about the need for, you know, I suppose more harmonisation of health measures north and south. And that's really because in Northern Ireland, the self-isolation period is seven days, but here in the Republic, it's 14 days. And also Northern Ireland ceased testing in the community in the middle of this month. It is doing hospital testing, but we're ramping up uh, community testing uh, for priority groups, but 5,000 a day moving up to 15,000. So you can see there's major differences. And I suppose if people are moving north-south, uh, there's the potential to place at risk uncontained spread here if measures are lifted at different times, say in the north or the south, uh, if, and that could see a resurgence of COVID-19 um, either in the north or the south. So it, it, it is a difficulty, but there's no suggestion obviously of closing borders because there's a lot of goods and services that move from north-south and goods that come in Dublin port to go north. So maybe more uh, stricter measures, but certainly not a closure of borders being suggested. Finally then, Fergal, further measures. Nursing homes was one of the areas that has cropped up. There's also been some discussion about travel, international travel in and out of ports and airports. Do we know anything about what, where the discussions, what direction they're going in? Well, yes, the, uh, the 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 emergency team uh, met today and has been discussing two things principally, nursing homes where we've seen clusters and issues around the travel into Ireland via airports and ports. So in relation to nursing homes, I, mean, I think we're going to see more emphasis on making sure nursing homes have sufficient personal protective equipment for staff and residents, also including enough oxygen because that's been in short supply. Also uh, managing staff and residents who are infected, I think you're going to see residents who test positive for COVID-19, some of them being moved to some of the new facilities that have been put in place to reduce the risk of spread within nursing homes, because that's a big danger that it would spread widely within homes. Then also, uh, you know, a stricter management of, of the movement of staff and others to and from nursing homes, again, to limit the spread. Regarding airports and ports that you mentioned there, I think we're going to see increased checks at airports and ports just to ensure people are Come, who, who are coming in that they self-isolate and are are sticking to the recommended uh, measures uh, that have been called for. Okay, thanks a million, Fergal. Great stuff. Take care, Dr. Colin. All right, talk to you. See you, bye-bye. Now for a look at matters in the EU. We're going to hear from our Europe editor, Tony Connolly, who's been talking to Ilvi Johansson, the EU's Home Affairs Commissioner, about responding to the risk in refugee camps, corona bonds and cybercrime. It's really been a terrible crisis for, for Europe uh, from so many angles. It's, it's been the epicentre. We Italy has now surpassed China with the highest number of deaths. And, you know, Italy's an appalling situation. Spain is also facing a, an appalling situation. So 
all of that has fed into a real sense of crisis in Europe. And there are sort of conflicting and sometimes contradictory viewpoints about what the EU should have done, should it have done more more quickly. I mean, the first thing to say is that national health is a, a national competence. And if a government is going to take emergency measures, then they have to be accountable to their citizens and their voters. Um, yet there's there's naturally an instinct that the EU should help. And the whole question of solidarity between member states has been in the spotlight because in the early part of this crisis, Germany refused to send protective equipment and ventilators to Italy, uh, which was in a desperate uh, situation. The European Commission threatened legal action against Germany for holding up the single market. In the meantime, China and Russia were sending equipment to the most affected countries, which suddenly looked very embarrassing for the EU project, which, of course, is founded on solidarity. Uh, Now, a lot of those problems have been dealt with and the, the European Commission has been trying to make sure that while member states understandably have taken unilateral action and closed their borders and tried to make sure their own stocks are there for doctors and hospitals and citizens, they have been trying to make to issue guidelines on okay, if you're going to close your borders, then make sure that trucks are getting through so that vital supplies are getting to hospitals and to supermarkets and that EU commuters can get home. The European Commission, I think, to be fair to them, were fairly quick to say, okay, if governments need to spend to fight the immediate crisis in their health centres, their health services, and if they need to prop up vital companies, then they can do that. So they've relaxed the state aid rules They've relaxed the Stability and Growth Pact rules. They've they've triggered what's called a general escape clause there. So these are things that they've been able to do quickly. Where the problem has been uh, has been more in in providing huge amounts of stimulus in the next phase of this, and that's where we are getting back into the eurozone uh, crisis territory. You know the terrible kind of moral scraps between Northern Europe and Southern Europe. Well, it seems it seems a particularly ugly spot at this point, because you can understand to some degree whether you agree with it or not, the idea that people would want conditionality on money in the teeth of what's a fiscal and banking crisis. The idea maybe that people want to see reform so that the same kind of circumstances don't lead to a similar financial crisis again. We're now looking at countries in the South of Europe like Spain, like Italy, uh, but particularly, say, Spain, who went through a very difficult period of trying to get its economy back on track. It has understandably still quite high debt levels, but still, you know, a number of structural problems. But with the coronavirus pandemic, it seems pretty poor timing to be insisting on conditionality in order to help people out. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I've never seen the level of rancor that we have, you know, really bitter exchanges between the southern countries. Actually, Portugal, the Portuguese Prime Minister, Antonio Costa, um, was more graphic than anybody else because the Dutch economy minister had made some remarks saying that, you know, how come during the good years, which the euro has had in the past five years, that Italy didn't kind of get its act together. Maybe Brussels should investigate why Italy's 
you know, system of government or fiscal position is so weak that it needs help uh, in the teeth of this crisis. And the the reaction to that was was sheer outrage. And I think the Dutch have been kind of uh, sort of soft pedaling a bit uh, in in the aftermath of these kind of, kind of comments. The overall viewpoint, uh, the majority view, is that this is not a case of moral hazard, as you say, in the euro crisis. It could be arguably justifiable for countries to say, well, Greece uh, and Italy and Ireland or whoever get into this problem of their own making. And if we're going to use the money of taxpayers of countries like Slovakia, which are not rich countries, uh, to bail Ireland or Greece or Portugal or Spain out, then we, we'd like to see that they're, they're not going to be in this position again. Um, but this time around, it's a symmetric shock. It means everybody's facing the shock. And there are no sinners here. You know, this is a lethal pandemic that has swept through Europe and affects everybody. Um, and it's not Italy's fault or Spain's fault uh, that people are dying in their thousands. Um, what they are looking at is a number of instruments to try and help countries out, as well as the moves that the Commission have made. There, the, the European Stability Mechanism, which, of course, is the big uh, EU bailout fund that was created by a treaty back in the day. Uh, it has 410 billion of a lo lending capacity, uh, and they're able to put forward, say, 348 billion of that um, as a credit line to countries who need help uh, to build up their health services, to you know, fight the immediate problem in the economies. Now, again, you've had the Netherlands saying, "Ah, well, yes, of course, the ESM is treaty-based; it requires conditionality." Um, we'll need to have, you know, uh, strings attached, whereas, uh, you know, most other people and, and including people close to the Eurogroup are saying, actually, we don't need to have a typical bailout instrument here uh, using the ESM. We can tweak the guidelines so that uh, this is a, a straightforward, quick, uh, cheap credit line to countries who need it without the conditionality uh, or you know, a restructure, restructuring program that was associated with the ESM in the past. And of course, Italy uh, had a very close run in with the ESM back in 2012. It was about to go into an ESM program. But of course, Mario Draghi, uh, the Italian uh, former president of the central bank, uh, made his famous uh, whatever it takes speech. And that kept the markets at bay. So Italy didn't need to go in to the ESM. But uh, for them, the idea that, you know, when over 10,000 people have died of this virus, that Italy should have to be uh, held to account or held to strict conditionality to get financial help is really, uh, you know, anathema at best and, and outrageous at worst. The, so the Corona bonds idea. This... The, the question of Corona bonds, yeah, it, it came up and there was a bit of confusion about what exactly it meant. But most people said it, it was really reviving this idea that uh, was around in the euro crisis of euro bonds, whereby the EU as a whole uh, pools its debt uh, and mutualizes the debt so that uh, a, a country can borrow money on the markets and it's kind of backstopped by the EU as a whole. Now that, uh, again, as, as we've discussed, ran into the question of moral hazard and the Dutch and the Austrians and the Germans and, and some of the Scandinavian countries were absolutely adamant 
that that wasn't going to be a runner uh, back in the Euro crisis. It's come up again now um, uh, under the guise of so-called Corona bonds. And again, the Dutch and the Germans have said, uh, not a chance, you know, we're not going to mutualize debt. We've got other instruments uh, at play that we can use. Now, my understanding is that, that you know, it, 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 it was given short shrift at a video conference of EU leaders last week. Um, and that caused a fairly bitter row between the Dutch and the Italians. But my understanding of Corona bonds is that it may come back into play in the future uh, in, in this way. Um, of course, countries need an immediate fix with fighting the virus <clears throat> through their health services and so on. But the big discussion now is how bad will the shock be and can it be a V-shaped uh, shock, shock? In other words, economies just plunge. But then when the virus is fixed or goes away, it bounces back to where it was before. Uh, or is it going to be an L-shaped uh, recession where the economy plunges and then it stays flat for a long time? So most of the uh, economists looking at this believe that if Europe is going to get out of this in a V-shape rebound, there's going to have to be a big stimulus uh, package and a big bazooka uh, unleashed at the Eurozone, at the EU at the right time, not immediately, but when we come out of this. Um, and that's when uh, the, the Corona bonds idea may come back into play. And some of the language around the, uh, the, the summit or, or the video conference declaration last week, according to some diplomats I've spoken to, um, should keep the idea on the table uh, and, and it can be stepped up to that level if need be. Now, I have been speaking to um, the European Commissioner for Home Affairs, uh, Ilva Johansson, the Swedish Commissioner, about the Corona bonds issue because it's something that the European Commission uh, has tacitly been supporting, as has the ECB. Uh, and here's what she had to say. For sure, we need to do a lot to help economy to recover from this situation step by step. We need to come back to economic growth and to well-functioning single market. And that, of course, gonna need we're going to need money to do that. But in my view, it's important to start with what are what what kind of needs do we have and what uh, are the goals what are the, uh, what would we like to do what is necessary to do i think it's a more constructive way to start uh, from that angle than to start with uh, actually what is the best tool to use to get the money well that was ilva johansson there speaking to you tony you've also been talking to her about some of europe's most vulnerable people uh, migrants who've come from syria and a number of other places across the sea from Turkey and landed on the Greek islands. And obviously where coronavirus to hit camps like uh, the Moria camp on Lesbos, we'd be looking at a disaster. So that was one of the issues you were raising with her. Yes, a big worry is, you know, what will happen at these big migrant camps that have been built up in the Greek islands. There are four uh, or five Greek islands which have uh, camps of asylum seekers who made their way across from Turkey. Uh, ever since 2014, 2015. And they've been languishing there in these big camps. Uh, the biggest camp, uh, Moria, as you mentioned, in Lesbos, built for 3,000 people, currently has over 19,000 people. Luckily, so far, there's been no outbreak uh, in the camps, but you can imagine if there was an outbreak, that would be ca catastrophic. Uh, this camp is extremely overcrowded. 
it has no real medical facilities to speak of apart from the rudimentary supports that NGOs can provide. There's no chance of social distancing. There's no prospect of even basic hygiene. Uh, so I asked uh, Commissioner Johansson what the situa- situation there was like and what it might be like if there was an outbreak. That could be extremely critical and that's why it's uh, absolutely necessary that uh, to take measures now. Uh, we have an emergency response plan together with the Greek authorities and the Greek government and they need to implement that now to put Take, to identify the most vulnerable people and to take them out of the camps, to move them to secure areas uh, outside the camp so they won't be fa- infected if the virus comes there. And also that we have to uh, set up a lot more uh, medical equipment, make awareness uh, to uh, for people uh, with information and to help them in, in different aspects. You know, the situation in some of these camps camps, uh, the living conditions were unacceptable already before this threat of the virus. So it's absolutely crucial to act very rapidly now to uh, do this uh, emergency response plan and set it into, put it into action. Tony, you've also been asking the commissioner about the issue of cybercrime. It's become a particular concern of law enforcement agencies across Europe as a result of people being locked down and having to do a lot of their business online. She has particular concerns about this. Yeah, there was a report by Europol last Friday uh, looking at the impact of the pandemic on crime and fraud. In particular, she mentioned uh, the problem of child pornography as well, uh, possibly as a result of uh, you know, more and more children being at home uh, with schools being closed and being online and some of the risks that that might present. It's booming. Uh, there is a lot of new frauds, there are a lot of false uh, um, goods that are being sold uh, mainly through internet, but it's also being um, used by pedophiles. We see booming activities from people that are searching for child sexual abuse online. And this is one of the things that really concerns me. And uh, I guess it's both what people that are grooming and trying to come in contact uh, with children, but also those that are searching for uh, uh, child sexual abuse content online. And we have a lot of children sitting uh, many hours uh, in front of their computer online. And some of them are vulnerable. Uh, And I think it's extremely important that we protect our children And I see the need for coming up with a new strategy on fighting child sexual abuse. Uh, And this, what we see right now actually just underlines this. We can also see how uh, organized criminal groups are very, very uh, quick to adapt to the new situation. And uh, this is also an area where we need to do much more from the commission side. So we are planning uh, new initiatives on fighting organized crime but also to help uh, law enforcement in member states to better adapt to this digital age where crimes are committed today. Uh, Ilva Johansson there talking about uh, some of the risks, uh, the cybercrime risks as a result of the pandemic. So essentially, Colm, you know... The, the... OK, thanks a million, Tony. We'll chat to you soon. Great, Colm. Thanks a lot.
And that's all for this episode of Pandemic. We're back tomorrow with more. In the meantime, do get in contact with suggestions or questions by email to column.omongain at rte.ie. That's C-O-L-M dot O-M-O-N-G-A-I-N at rte.ie or on Twitter at column Do subscribe through your usual podcast platform to get this podcast regularly. Reviews are welcome and, of course, nice reviews even more welcome. So until tomorrow, take care. So long.